This is Muslim Footprints, an opportunity to deep dive into Muslim civilizations through the ages, accompanied by some of the best experts and academics in their field. My name is Aisha Dyer. Shainal Jiwa has been on tour these past few months, promoting her latest book on the Fatimid Empire. The book coincides with the launch of a new tourist route through Cairo, the city that the Fatimids founded. But who were the Fatimids? This Shia Ismaili dynasty reigned over a diverse religious and ethnic population for about 200 years, emerging from the vibrant 10th century world of the Mediterranean. At its height, the Fatimid Empire stretched across the length of the southern Mediterranean and down the Red Sea coast. So, what we know as Algeria today, all the way to the Levant and along the west coast of Saudi Arabia. It included the holy cities of Mecca and Medina, as well as Jerusalem, Damascus, and even Sicily. The authority of its Imam Caliphs was recognized as far as present-day Iran, Central Asia, Yemen, and India. The story of how the dynasty came about is as remarkable as some of its achievements. And it offers plenty of food for thought for our current times. Shainal joined me from London, where she's Associate Professor at the Institute of Ismaili Studies. The Fatimid dynasty traces its lineage back to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him and his family, through his son-in-law, Ali. What was the backdrop to their eventual rise to power? So the Fatimids are a dynasty of Ismaili imams, and they come about because it is a time when the broader Muslim world is ruled by the Abbasids, a dynasty uh, who took their name from an uncle of the Prophet called Al-Abbas. The Abbasids took over from an earlier dynasty called the Umayyads, claiming that they were therefore the rightful rulers, uh, and that the Umayyads, who were part of the broader tribe of the Quraysh to which the Prophet belonged, were not quite the right rulers. Now, during this period of the Umayyads and the Abbasids, particularly when the Abbasids take over, the Shia get persecuted very severely because the claim of the Shia was that it was only Prophet Muhammad, uh, Imam Ali, Fatima Hassan, and Imam Hussein who were the rightful Ahlul Bayt. They were the rightful family of the Prophet from whose lineage the authority of the Prophet, both spiritual and temporal, belonged. So that was the claim of the Shia. The Shia being the Shi'at Ali, which means the party or the followers of Ali. We're a hundred or so years now since the death of the Prophet Muhammad in 632. 
And this question of who has the legitimacy to lead the Muslim community is ongoing. So the Shia imam or spiritual leader is forced to go into hiding. The imams go into hiding for about 150 years. They move from Medina in Arabia to Khuzestan in Persia to Salamia in Syria. And their identities stay hidden from everyone except a few trusted associates. It's during this era that the Dawah is formed, a religious political movement whereby associates of the imam would travel and propagate their cause. A rightly guiding mission, inviting or calling humankind to the truth. That's how they referred to themselves. And these were called the Dais. So the Dawa is extremely active and energetic. These Dais who knew the teachings of the Imam would then be the ones who kept the faith of the community together and spread the faith. So we know of Dawa developments and support um, in lots of places, in Yemen, in Iran, in Iraq, in present-day Bahrain, in Arabia, of course, um, in Sindh, in Multan, so Hind, what was called Sindh were Hind at that time, Sindh and Hind, meaning the Indian subcontinent in that region, uh, in Ifriqiya, which is present-day Tunisia. So you have this whole spread of the Dawah happening in support of the Shia imams. In what ways was this Dawa a precursor to the Fatimid state? Dais were making the case for the Imam, the cause of the Imam, with a twinfold mission. One was that that the rightful Imam is present, is around, is um, yes, camouflaged, his identity is camouflaged, but his teachings are known, and we are the people who are communicating and teaching those teachings, one. And two, they were galvanizing people for establishing a state for the imam from where then the beliefs and and mission of the da'wah could be brought to fruition, where the imam's authority would be publicly declared. He would then take over as the rightful heir of the prophet, uh, temporal and, and religious heir, and he would then reign uh, as per the principles of what the Prophet had established of righteous rule. The opportunity for the Imam to be publicly declared eventually presents itself in North Africa. Keep in mind the Imam is currently in hiding in Syria, which is like several countries away. How does this all happen? So the Dai who establishes Fatimid authority in Ifriqiya, Dai Abu Abdullah Shi'i. So he's from Kufa originally in Iraq. Look at how far flung and spread this is, right? He is in Kufa in Iraq. From there, he is sent by the Dawa to Yemen to train. He then comes to Mecca to perform the pilgrimage. The pilgrims from Ifriqiya called the Kutama Berber pilgrims, come also to Mecca to perform the pilgrimage. 
they see this man they see he's very pious they see his teachings are very you know appealing in terms of you know the right ways of life and they connect with him and they say you know we want to learn from you and so then he's teaching them various things about what it means to be a good muslim and you know the principles of islamic and when the pilgrimage finishes they say to him will you please come with us where we live you know in africa we don't have teachers like you and our children need to learn from you to to be to, to be on the right path so he's invited as a teacher to join them and so he joins them and arrives in africa lives with them for several years teaches them and gradually unfolds the principles of the dawa to them and they accept the dawa they become in that sense smiley they accept the dawa they take the oath of allegiance to dima and they become the backbone of the ismaili dawa in 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 north africa and eventually the imam who was living in salamia at this point um leaves from salamia and travels all the way salamia is in syria as we know um he travels from syria comes into palestine stays there for a while and then makes his way all the way into africa This 10th century Muslim world is a really vibrant period and the Mediterranean has become its heart. You have the Abbasids ruling in the east, the Fatimids in the south of the Mediterranean, and in the north of the Mediterranean, the Umayyads are back. When the Abbasids toppled the Umayyads in 750 in Damascus in Syria, one of the umayyad princes makes his way all the way from there across into the Medi- you know from the coastal southern coastal mediterranean and makes his way over into spain and establishes his authority there and is accepted so you now have the umayyads ruling in that part of the world in andalusia in spain and portugal from 755 so you now have three caliphs in the muslim world right for a time being so it's a fascinating period in islamic history in medieval muslim world the rest of the episode continues in just a moment after this message on behalf of the team at the ismaili we'd like to thank you for tuning in to muslim footprints We very much hope you're enjoying this show and would be grateful if you could leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. We appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more valuable content in the future. Now, back to the show. After 60 years or so, The Fatimids move their capital from Ifriqiya to Egypt. So this is them really evolving from a provincial dynasty to a thriving Mediterranean empire. They were the ones that actually built Cairo. What explains that move from Ifriqiya? Egypt had always been on their sides. Egypt was at the was 
part of the heartbeat, if you like, of the Muslim world, you know, part of the central lands of the Muslim world. And of course, Egypt has been, you know, one of the earliest cradles of, of, of human civilization. And so you find that even when, you know, the Dawah in Egypt had always been very strong. So even when the Fatimids um, arrive in uh, North Africa, in Ifriqiya, soon after that, Imam al-Mahdi sends a, a campaign to Egypt, uh, two campaigns under his son al-Qayyim. They don't succeed, but he sends them. And then the third campaign, Imam al-Qayyim himself led as the Imam Caliph as well. And so Egypt had always been on their radar. It brought them much more into the center stage of the Muslim world. And it became the seat of the Muslim caliphate for the first time. After that, Egypt continued, of course, under the Mamluks to be the seat of the caliphate. But this is the first time that happens. Throughout their rule, what's interesting is that the Shia Fatimids were a minority they ruled over majority non-Shi'i populations. The Ismailis remained a minority. The Sunnis were just becoming a majority in Egypt when the Fatimids arrived in Egypt. But you had very um, long centuries established Christian presence, the Copts, for example, the Christian Copts, the Nestorian Christians, the Melkite Christians, uh, several denominations of the Jews were living in Egypt at the time. So it was a very multicultural, multi-ethnic society. And it continues like this because the model of governance that the Fatimids develop, as I said, followed the precedent of the Prophet Muhammad. So when you think about Prophet Muhammad and you think about Medina, when the Prophet first arrives in Medina, the majority of the people there were not Muslim. They were from different religious backgrounds. And yet the Prophet offers what he called the dimma, the protection to all these peoples, doesn't matter what religions they were, under the canopy of the protection of the Prophet as the ruler now of the region. That's the model the Fatimids follow. So there is never a requirement to join the faith to get any positions in the state, for example. So you could become the chief minister, and we have examples of the chief minister, for example, having converted from Judaism to Islam to becoming an Ismaili. You have um, examples of a Nestorian Christian being a wazir, being a chief minister. So it's also interesting that the Dawah, the Fatimid Dawah, continues to flourish in other parts of the world where they continue to gain you know, adherence to the cause, etc. In the Fatimid lens, we have no example of any coercion to join the Dawah. The Dawah was there, people who wanted to join could join, but there was no active proselytization. Let's talk now about statecraft. One of the key features of Fatimid rule is the ways in which they institutionalized this multi-ethnic society they'd inherited. And it's quite an enlightened position, recognizing the importance of putting the relevant hardware in place to build and support societies that are inclusive. So you find that the Fatimids allow for um, every single Sunni denomination of practice to continue. They do not impose Shia Islam. 
So for example, they were, we know there were Hanafis, there were Malikis, there were Hanbalis, there were Shafis, particularly in Egypt. Each of these were particular denominations among the Sunni, they're called the Sunni Madhabs, the four major Sunni Madhabs, okay? And adherents from each of these Madhabs were allowed to be judged according to their own principles uh, of, as they had developed over time. Uh, so they could go to their own court. You could go to a Shafi court. You could go to a Hanafi court. Similarly, Jews and Christians could also, of course, go to their own courts. And this entire system was supported and protected and paid for by the Fatimids. So they created a platform. They allowed for different communities to be judged on matters of personal law. And, you know, most of the cases that we get are often on issues of personal law, right? Divorces, inheritance, commercial transaction, etc. On matters of state law, public law, Fatimid law prevailed. But on all these other matters, people could go and get judgment as per their own choice. Similarly, they allowed for the practice of faith. So mosques, a Hanafi mosque, a Shafi mosque, all these could continue under now the dimma under the protection of the Fatimid Imam Khedivs. So they allowed for this plurality of interpretations to continue and thrive, even though they themselves were, of course, Ismailis. They wouldn't call it pluralism at the time because the term itself is much more a modern term. But the ethic of inclusion, the ethic of accepting diversity, the value of allowing people to live as per their own beliefs and practices is something that the Fatimids institutionalized. In a lecture at the Institute for Canadian Citizenship in 2010, the Aga Khan, the 49th hereditary imam of the Ismailis, who refer to him as Maulana Hazar Imam, describes how other Muslim civilizations at the time also embraced a pluralist ethic. He contrasts this with the nationalism that followed several centuries later. But even as Europe fragmented after the fall of Rome, another success story emerged in Egypt. I have a special interest in this story because it concerns my ancestors, the Fatimid Caliphs who founded the city of Cairo a thousand years ago. They were themselves Shia in an overwhelmingly dominant Sunni culture. And for nearly two centuries, they led a strong pluralistic society, welcoming a variety of Islamic interpretations, as well as people of Christian, Jewish, and other backgrounds. Similarly, on the Iberian Peninsula, between the 8th and the 16th centuries, Muslim, Christian, and Jewish cultures interacted creatively in what was known as Al-Andalus. Remarkably, it lasted for most of seven centuries, a longer period than the time that has since passed. The fading of Al-Andalus came as a new spirit of nationalism rose in Europe, 
propelled by what scholars have called a sense of imagined community. Where local and tribal loyalties once dominated, national identifications came to flourish. As we know, these nationalist rivalries eventually exploded into world war. The post-war emergence of the European Union has been a response to that history, much as regional groupings from Southeast Asia to Central Asia, from Latin America to Eastern Africa, have been testing the potential for pan-national cooperation. All the Muslim dynasties at the time actively supported intellectual pursuits. Learning was seen as a noble thing to do. People would travel across the known world in pursuit of knowledge. You look at several sayings of the Prophet, right? He speaks about um, go to China to get knowledge, um, learn from cradle to grave. You know, all of these sayings of the Prophet around learning and knowledge is actually part of the Muslim ethic that you find right across these early centuries. Whether you look at the Abbasids, you look at the Umayyads of Andalusia, you look at the Fatimids, it's a shared culture, it's a shared ethos, uh, it's a shared value system. Under the Fatimids, knowledge was made available to the public, to people from all walks of life. You have lots of um, uh, the Fatimids not only have palace libraries, which are which are extremely well uh, stocked in terms of works from all different disciplines, but they, for example, create what comes to be called the Dar al Hikmah in Imam al Hakim's time, which is a becomes a public center of knowledge and learning, which is unheard of at this time because it was seen as a completely different way of making knowledge available because up until that time people who wanted to learn would have to go you know and go to people who had the wherewithal to have these manuscripts that were highly expensive and rare whereas this way a center was created where all this knowledge was brought and made available to whoever wanted to come and learn and scholars were placed there to teach about all the known subjects of the time, all the known religious subjects, astronomy, linguistics, grammar, medicine, you name it. If it was known at the time as a subject, it was taught there. And religious sciences were taught at the Azhar. So what you find is that there is this proliferation of learning and knowledge. The Fatimid the Imam Caliph also created um, an endowment, for example, for the, for the continuity of the Dar al-Hikmah. And provision was made for people to have writing materials, which was provided free of charge. They did find time to have fun, though. You give some fascinating examples of festivals in your books that I'll leave people to discover for themselves. Um, but what were the underlying principles of ceremonials and festivities? For the Fatimids, ceremonies become one way in which access to the Imam Caliph is, first of all, he is seen 
among the people because he rides as part of the ceremonies often. We would leave from the palace and um, go all the way to the mosque, uh, one of the key mosques, for example, the Azhar or the Anwar, all the Akmar later to you know, so recite the, 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 the prayer with the community, people who were there with the members, but also to give the khutbah. But on the way back, he would often then receive petitions from people about whatever it is that they wanted him to look in. Mm -hmm. Ceremonies become a very powerful way also of the imam's tabarruk, of his baraka being shared with people. So let me give you one example. During the um, festival of Eid, but the Imam Caliph would host a feast, a celebratory uh, meal at the palace. And notables from uh, his court and others would be invited um, to attend. And they would often wear these robes that they had been given by the Imam Caliph, which had benedictions to the Imam inscribed on them okay and they would be wearing these robes and the robes were designed such that they had these long sleeves which could be doubled up and when they left as they were leaving the palace these little sweetmeats were made available for all these people to take in their sleeve uh, and then share with the with their family their friends other community members as tabarruk uh, from the house of the Imam as Baraka uh, that has come from the house of the Imam. The Fatimids became known far and wide for their celebrations as this vivid description of an Eid banquet from Nasser Khosrow, a Persian traveller, poet and philosopher, shows. He lived for three years in Cairo and was stunned by the splendour of the city. Taken by my friend as I entered the door to the hall, I saw constructions, galleries and porticos that would take too long to describe adequately. There were 12 square structures built one next to the other, each more dazzling than the last. Each measured 100 cubits square and one was a thing 60 cubits square with a dais placed the entire length of the building at a height of four L's on three sides all of gold with hunting and sporting scenes depicted thereon and also an inscription in marvellous calligraphy. All the carpets and pillows were of Byzantine brocade and Bukallamun, each woven exactly to the measurements of its place. There was an indescribable latticework balustrade of gold along the sides. Behind the dais and next to the wall were silver steps. The dais itself was such that if this book were nothing from beginning to end but a description of it, words would still not suffice. They say that 50,000 mounds of sugar were appropriated for this day for the Caliph's feast. For decoration on the banquet table, I saw a confection like an orange tree, every branch and leaf of which had been executed in sugar, and thousands of images and statuettes in sugar. A couple of decades ago, a previously unknown manuscript called the Book of Curiosities was unearthed and acquired by the Bodleian Library at Oxford. It was compiled in Egypt between 1020 and 1050. We don't know who the author is, but he must have been part of the navy, which was very powerful during Fatimid times. 
because it was a coastal power. What new knowledge has the manuscript given us about the Fatimids? He clearly belongs to the naval uh, forces, uh, probably a naval administrator, uh, you know, official. But he also, in all likelihood, was a Dai because he knows about the Da'wah. And the way he presents the Fatimid Empire is through the lens of the sea. So what does the empire look like from the sea? And so places where the Fatimids ruled, it tells you about those islands and those spaces in particular ways. Places where the Fatimids might aspire to rule, it gives you all the strategic information about those ports and those coastal areas. So where, where, where are their fresh water pockets? Where are the safe places to hide boats? Okay. It's a very interesting way of looking at the Fatimids. It's also a brilliant work of cartography. It gives us maps of places with an accuracy and acumen that we've not had so far. It's unearthing literally some incredible understandings about the Fatimids that we have not yet had sight of. The Fatimid dynasty is named after a woman, Fatima, beloved child of the Prophet and his wife Khadija. One of her monikers was Fatima Tazahra, the resplendent one. Could you elaborate a bit more on that? You see, this is now the daughter of the Prophet and the son-in-law and cousin of the Prophet and their lineage, right? So she becomes a very significant figure in Fatimid times. And just to give you a couple of examples of, so if you look at the major mosques that the Fatimids build, right? The Al-Azhar Mosque, um, the look at that name itself, Al-Azhar, the female of which is Zahra, Fatima the Zahra, right? The illuminated, the lit. The next mosque that they built comes to be called Jamia al-Anwar. Today it is often known as the Al-Hakim Mosque. But it was originally started in the time of our fifth Fatimid Imam Caliph al-Aziz and was named Jamiatul Anwar, the mosque of, again, illumination of light, Anwar plural of Noor. Right? Um, the third major mosque that they built a bit later on is called um, Akmar Mosque from Kamar, from, from the moon, the light of the moon. Right? So you see how this metaphor of light that Fatima represents becomes infused right through various aspects of the Fatimids. And they call the prophet Jadduna, our grandfather, because they follow the model of authority and leadership that the prophet had established in Medina. Right? They actually follow that and, and make not only make the claim, but use that, use that model as their paradigm. And staying on that topic of authority, you give detailed examples of how the Ismaili imams pass on the authority to rule from one imam to the next. It's really interesting how that happens, that passing on of the divine right of succession. So it's very interesting because it happens differently. I think that's the critical point because, you know, we have this sense that it is all you know, sort of 
fixed and packaged in a in a particular neat way and it happens exactly like this you know and it's not it is the prerogative of each imam as the divinely designated guide to appoint his successor as he deems best for that time and circumstance so there is one in the time of imam al-mahdi where he calls his son uh, al-qayyim who already had al-mansur with him at the time so he invites them both there in name he says to al-mansur bring your son um, to the court uh, and at that time al-moyes was just was a babe and that's where imam al-mahdi said this is a truly momentous occasion because we have four imams present so you have a very interesting articulation or signaling uh, signposting of the fact that this is the line of the imams right but it doesn't stop there so for example when it comes to the succession of Imam al-Qayyim, Imam al-Qayyim entrusts and, 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 and confides in um, a very close confidant of the, of the house of the Imams uh, called Jaudar, to whom he says, you know, I am telling you that after me, my successor will be al-Mansur. And he says, it is important that before I bury the Imam, my father, I must say who my successor is. Now you see, when you think about the events that are happening at the time, when it comes to the time when Imam Qayyim passes away, you have a major uh, opposition to the Fatimids that nearly gets rid of their rule in entire region. It's by this uh, person called Abu Yazid who starts a revolt and it builds momentum for various reasons. And so it is quite prescient of Imam Al-Qayyim to have said it is important that you know when I die, before I bury my father, I say who the next Imam is. Because when Imam Qayyim dies, it is in these circumstances. It is in these dire circumstances where, in fact, the succession of Imam al-Mansur is kept secret for several months until Imam Mansur actually defeats Abu Yazid and the Fatimid rule is re-established across the region. Then he publicly declares that, you know, I am the successor, my father has passed away. And then similarly, you have stories of each of the imams after that in their own way, as per their own time and circumstance, pronouncing who their successor is. The Fatimids experienced what you describe as a chaotic final century of rule. What were the main factors that were responsible for ending the empire? There were several shifts that happened already in the in the 11th century so you have um, the abbasids are now supported by a, a, a seljuk uh, seljuks who are sunni they are turks and they are new converts to islam so they have the zeal of serving serving the abbasids and the abbasids find the seljuks extremely helpful then in counteracting the Fatimid influence and spread. So that's one thing that happens. 
You also have in this time the Crusaders coming all the way from Western lands into the Levant, into what is today uh, Palestine and that whole region. And they come in there and they want to reclaim Jerusalem, as they say, as part of their holy war, as part of their crusade. Okay, so you have these hordes of crusader armies now coming in. And at this point, Jerusalem was under Fatimid rule. So they are now directly clashing with them. So while these external shifts are happening, internally, you have several things happening. In the time of Imam Muslim Sibila, you have seven years when the Nile does not rise enough for the fields to be flooded with water. And you know, they say the Egypt is the gift of the Nile. So if the Nile does not, um, does not uh, water the lands of Egypt, uh, Egypt becomes fallow. And so you have drought and you have uh, obviously diseases and people are starving because this is a seven year cycle. And so all of this means that authority at the Fatimid court also weakens because there are different power groups that are also jostling for power. So this internal weakening uh, of the empire through these various issues and the external uh, shift of forces and influences means that over a period of the next century, the Fatimid Empire itself just slowly but inexorably de declines. Fatimid rule in Egypt lasted for 200 years. They are the only Shia dynasty to have ever ruled over Egypt. Shinal's books on the Fatimids are out now. Muslim Footprints is developed and produced by Kelima Communications in partnership with The Ismaili. Our theme tune is Mola Mamajan, performed by Black Heat. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Muslim Footprints. <laughs>